and we'll see how it goes. We haven't been doing this regularly, so we'll trust God to lead us along. Heavenly Father, we're just so very thankful for the opportunity for us to sing songs of praise to your name, to study your word, to hear what you have to say through us through your word. Grant us open hearts, teachable hearts. We might take the spirit-applied word and it might work a change in our lives for good, that we might honor you, that we might be useful to you for service in whatever way you call us to, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of my uh, favorite hymns has this verse in it. While we walk the pilgrim pathway, clouds will overspread the sky. But when traveling days are over, not a shadow, not a sigh. That one verse out of that hymn kind of summarizes where we're going today in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through chapter 5, verse 2. That'll be our text today. And I kind of toy with different titles. At one point, the title I have for this message was How to Shrink Your Troubles, uh, which I thought was pretty cute. Uh, but actually, the verse of the passage has more to do with how we travel this journey that we're on from where we are now to one day when we're in glory. And how, I, I guess you could say, traveling tips for the journey. Because uh, we're on this long journey, and it's important that we go about it in the right way. Or at least we realize the resources we have at our disposal that we don't get overwhelmed. So let me go ahead and read this text here. It's starting here in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. And let's just stop right there. And, and you know, as we look at this text, there's a couple of things I hope as you're reading that maybe we're puzzled about or you're asking questions about. For example, this matter of troubles and trials. I don't know if any of you have experienced those kind of things. That's a joke. We all go through troubles and trials, don't we? Well, what is this light and momentary stuff? It doesn't seem light and momentary to me. We've got to answer. We've got to figure out what that's all about. And then, it, I don't know if you noticed, but in verse 18, it's saying that you're supposed to look at the things you can't see. Now, wait a minute here. How am I supposed to look at the things I can't see? If they're not seen, I can't see them. So we've got to figure out what that's all about. And then thirdly, in chapter 5, verse 1, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed. Now, why is the word if there? You know, I'm a hospice chaplain. One of the things I realized is all these people with a terminal diagnosis, 
100% of them do what? Die. They die. And that's pretty much the universal statistic, is that one out of one people die. <laughs> I was trying to hide, Nate. So we've got to answer that question too. Why does it say if? Because I thought that was a pretty much for a certain thing. Yesterday I visited my dad in Hillsborough, and my dad's 92. And if you've been around elderly folks, and I guess some might consider me that now, but you, you know that they like to talk about things that they remember from a long time ago. And that happens every time I'm there. And a lot of the stories I hear about times in his childhood. Yeah, my dad, when he was a teenager, he was working, working hard at a lumber mill, a place called Fern Flat. If you go up to Hillsboro and you drive to North Plains, you probably know where that is. When you go further down that direction, you end up in Mountaindale, and you keep going past Mountaindale up into the mountains, and you end up at this place called Fern Flat. Well, my dad used to work in a lumber mill there. It was my brother, his brother-in-law's lumber mill. They had a homestead and they had a mill and dad worked there. So I took him up there yesterday. It's about a 20-mile drive. We drove out Dairy Creek and got on the gravel road and started driving up there towards this place called Fern Flat and we got there. And lo and behold, when we got there to the flat place where that was, here was the platform, the old metal platform for the mill. It was still there from a 1940s mill. And so that was pretty amazing. And then we were looking at the roads, and Dad's trying to remember. He says, oh, no, I think that, that's the road. That road over there is the road that goes up to the homestead, old homestead. And there was a gate on it, no trespassing sign. We would have had to walk about a mile and a half. But Dad and his memories telling me about all that it was like. He used to have a pet deer up there, and they had a big mill up there, and they had a whole bunch of old-growth timber they were cutting down. And he used to have a horse, and he'd ride the horse from that place, four and a half miles down the hill, to a place called Snoozeville, of all things. And then he would get on the bus, and with all the various stops the bus had to make from past Mountaindale, it took 27 miles to get to Hillsborough High School. So those were the days, right? But as we're talking about these things, and as it's like I'm with really kind of, you know, on one of those guided trips where you have a narrator telling you all the things that are going on, I, I'm kind of doing that. I'm driving. You say, oh, so-and-so used to live over there. I don't know what happened to all the houses in Snoozeville. Oh, there used to be a nudist colony up that road over there, and there's Panther Creek over there, and on and on and on. Well, it occurred to me afterwards, and I, I suppose from one standpoint it's kind of sad, or just a reminder that we're getting old, is the old growth trees are gone. The mill is gone. Chet is gone. My Aunt Bobby's gone. The horse named Ronnie's gone. The pet deer is gone. Little Bend Park, which used to be up there, BLM Park, no less. It's gone. Snoozeville is gone. The nudity colony is gone. That's probably a good thing. The bus is gone. And down the road, all these people, Dad knew, all these homes, guess what? They're all gone. 
Well, that's kind of sad, is it not? But if you're an older person like me, you know of such things, right? Life, we're just here for a little while. In fact, that's there in the heart of the passage. The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. See that there? So all those things you see out there, those beautiful hills over there, Lewis and Clark River, that ugly big barn there, the cows, the houses, doesn't matter. It's all what? Temporary. It's all temporary. In fact, just to speak to my old age, the hospital I was born in in Portland no longer exists. The nuclear power plant I used to work at has been torn down. The submarine I served on was long ago scrapped. I guess I'm getting old. We all are, right? Well, looking at this passage, one thing we have to realize, looking at verses 16 and 17, our outer self, it's our body, our human body, is wasting away, the good news, this is why we don't lose heart, our inner self is being renewed day by day. God is doing that by means of the Holy Spirit. And then it says this, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. One thing I come to realize as a pastor and a hospice chaplain and just being alive on this planet, everybody has their troubles. Everybody has their troubles. Now, they may be different from one person to the other, but we all have them. And they come to us a variety of ways. And, and the Bible's not shy about reminding us about this. Jesus said, for example, kind of a seeming understatement, each day has enough troubles of its own. Right? He also said, in this world you will have tribulation. It says in Job, man is born for trouble. And ain't that the reality of it? Why is that so? Well, because of sin. We live in a sin-cursed world. Some of the troubles that we confront are just there because of that reality. It's a broken world. It's a broken world. And in a broken world, things don't work the way they're supposed to. Right? And that means trouble. There are troubles we experience that are the direct result of personal sin. A man reaps what he sows, Galatians chapter 6. And there are troubles that we face as a result of being a follower of Jesus Christ. A whole other set of troubles. Because not everybody's keen on that. No one is exempt from trouble. Believers and unbelievers alike both face them. Did you know that? You've got yours. You had them when you were lost. You've got a different set now. Come of various kinds, emotional, spiritual, physical, financial, relational, big, small. You could probably, in your mind right now, make a list of all the different troubles you have. It wouldn't be hard for you to do. You can start with your body. Some things aren't working the way they're supposed, supposed to anymore. I've got some knees that are wearing out. I don't want to get to do. I might have to get knee replacements. Some people here know about such things. But that's not the only thing. Financial troubles, 
relational troubles, political troubles, you name it. How in the world, Apostle Paul, and of course, remind ourselves this is an inspired word of God, can you consider such things light and momentary? I've already shared. Uh, Laura was diagnosed with uh, stage four metastatic breast cancer six and a half years ago. Wow, seems like a long time. We were just down there at the office down in Astoria when the doctor shared that news with us. Six and a half years. Six and a half years of chronic pain. On three pain meds every day, six and a half years. There's not a day that goes by she's not experiencing pain. For much of the days, she found out the TENS machine, if you've ever been to physical therapy, you might have used one of those. She found out that helps kind of disguise the pain a little bit. doesn't take it away. So she's been using that more lately. And sometimes she'll just cry out, you know, because she's got some pain attack, worse than the general chronic pain. Six and a half years. So I don't know about you, I get a sliver of my hand. And that's too much for me. That thing's got to come out. And imagine six and a half years. I came down here for a visit a couple years ago and got a kidney stone. I'm lying on the floor in agony. Help me now or just kill me. Six and a half years. You know, how, how in the world then, Paul, can you say momentary affliction or light for that matter? A cancer that's destroyed your spine? A cancer that's throughout your body, littered little tumors everywhere? That's put your life at risk in a terminal condition? And you're calling that light? And every other week, you take pills that make you sick so you can stay better? Does that even make any sense? How can you call that light? And how can you call that momentary? Well, step back for a second. The Apostle Paul, by the way, if you didn't know, he's an expert on trials. He's got his Ph.D. in enduring trials. He's endured every possible kind of trial. He's been shipwrecked. He's been stoned. He's been imprisoned. He's been beaten numerous times. There's a long list of all the different things that he faced in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. So he knows about trials. He's not making light of them. And he's a man with a heart full of compassion, by the way. He's not just laughing it off. He's not dismissing it and saying, that's no big deal. I don't know what you're concerned about, your troubles. That's not what he's saying. In fact, to take that one step further, there is nobody who cares more about the troubles you're facing than the Lord Jesus. There's nobody. In fact, the reality is, even if nobody else cares, he cares. He cares. And so let's keep that in mind as we read that, and don't misunderstand what it's saying. Does Jesus care about my wife's troubles? Oh, yes, he cares. In fact, as I shared earlier, when we're confronted by those kind of things, and I 
I think I can speak with some degree of authority to this as a hospice chaplain. You know, obviously, we would like for people to be healed. God, do a miracle. Heal this person. Heal Laura. When I went to Uganda, we had a whole church full of people praying for her. Undoubtedly, most of those people were praying for her healing. But let me tell you this, that there's a deeper kind of healing and a greater miracle God can do in the life of a person. And Laura has had such a wonderful attitude and testimony by means of her faith in Christ. Not grumbling, not complaining, not anxious, not fearful, not doing anything to blame anybody, but instead just trusting Jesus. And that's its own kind of miracle. Right? And how did that happen? Well, it happened because God graced her amidst her troubles to have a good perspective on these things. But what the passage is really talking about, and this is the heart of the matter, something we might like to do is say, well, you know what? I got some pretty bad trials going on. But when I look at so-and-so, they're so bad off. Mine aren't so bad. Well, that's not what this verse is doing. What this verse is saying is, Go ahead and collect all, all your troubles. I don't care what they are. All the physical ones, all the spiritual ones, the emotional ones. Stack them on. There's a balance scale right in front of you. Stack them on one side. Put them all there. One to a hundred. I'm sure you can come up with a long list. I know I could. Seemed pretty big, right? Take my wife's. Seemed pretty big. But what I'm saying is, on the other side of the scale, put this eternal weight of glory that is far beyond all comparison. And what happens? That trouble that seems so big, guess what? It's small in comparison. It's small in comparison. This little time of trouble is small in comparison to eternity. Those troubles which seem so big now, they're small in comparison to the glory that will be revealed in you, to you, through you in heaven. And that's the way you look at it. And really when you think about it, it's no different. I was talking to Donna earlier before she was driving a covered wagon over Barlow Trail up on Mount Hood. And... You know, if you've read those accounts, those people that traveled a couple thousand miles over all those months that came from over there in Missouri, St. Louis, and other places, and all the things that they endured, right? Cholera, Indians, accidents, fires, weather events, on and on and on. And they knew, they knew ahead of time there were going to be all these troubles, but they weighed those troubles in view of where they were going. They wanted to get here, the Willamette Valley and Oregon Territory and all of that, right? And because they weighed that to be so great and so valuable, they endured their troubles. It's even better for us because what lies on the other side for us as believers in Christ is guaranteed in the faithfulness and promises of God to us. And that kind of brings us to our next point, because we have this choice as believers. We have a choice the unbeliever does not have. The unbeliever does not have the capacity to look at the things that are unseen. He doesn't even believe in them. 
He's stuck here in this world, which unfortunately now, if you're an unsaved person in this world with the things that are going on, boy, that's a tough way to go, is it not? But for you as a believer, you have a choice. You don't need to focus on your troubles. In fact, this passage is saying you shouldn't. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Now, yeah, this is a challenge for us. This is a challenge for us. We are so prone to do this. We have our five senses. We readily use them. We gauge our lives according to what we see, what we hear, what we touch, feel, etc. Yet we have passages like this one and another one in Colossians 3, chapter 1. It says, chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Do not set your mind on the things of the earth, but set your mind on the things that are above, it says. Right? We have a challenge that way. So what it's saying here is we're not to walk through life with our face to the ground, looking and, you know, complaining and focusing on our troubles. Instead, we're to have our sights set on where we're going and God's provision to us. Yeah, I think this is a really fascinating thing to think about because we look at this passage and I asked the question earlier, how do we see the things that are unseen? The reality is we know about a lot of things. For example, do you believe you have a heart? Well, yeah, you do, right? Yeah. Have you ever seen it? No, you've never seen it. There's a lot of things like that in reality. And there's things that we cannot see by the human eye that you can see with the help of an optical instrument. In fact, did you know, if you go back to the 1400s, the people on this world, by and large, there might have been a few exceptions, believed that the sun rotated around the earth. The whole world believed that. They were wrong, but they believed that. They believed the sun rotated around the earth. And then Copernicus comes along. He's a mathematician and an astronomer, and he theorized that that's not true. Then, in fact, the earth revolves around the sun. He, he theorized that, and it gets reported, but it goes nowhere. That's so absurd. Nobody would believe that, right? But then Galileo comes along, and Galileo has something that Copernicus did not have. You know what he had? He had a telescope. Wow. Now all of a sudden he can look up there at the sun and the moon and the stars, and he can see how they're relating to each other. And Galileo says, you know what? Copernicus is right. The sun does not rotate around the earth. The earth rotates around the sun. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) You know what happens for Galileo? He goes out and he starts speaking this truth, and he faces incredible persecution. Can you imagine? All he's doing is trying to tell the truth about this reality. But it can be like that for us. So focused on our troubles. Right? Just walking down the path, looking at the dirt. When we have somebody with us who would turn our focus elsewhere. We have the helper, the Holy Spirit. We're not alone. We've got the one whom Jesus said, He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and disclose it to you. We've got the one indwelling us who is always pointing the finger, if you will, at Jesus and saying to us, look there. He walks with us every day. 
we as believers have a choice. We can listen to the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. We can have our thoughts and our hearts directed heavenward. We don't have to be earthbound. We don't have to live that way. In fact, God doesn't want us to live that way. He wants us to be thinking about and looking towards heaven. In fact, look uh, with me, if you will, at Ephesians chapter 1. <coughs> Ephesians chapter 1 and uh, in verse 15, we have a prayer here. The Apostle Paul, there's actually two prayers in, the, in this epistle. In the first one, chapter 1, Paul, might, Paul prays they might realize the riches that they have in Christ the second prayer in chapter 3, that they might realize the measure of Christ's love for them, which is frankly beyond knowledge. Uh, but in this one, let me read through the prayer and keep your eyes open for something about eyes. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you Remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that is Christ, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So how is it you look at the things that are unseen? How is it you take your focus off your troubles? You take your focus off the political mess. You take your focus off your emotional troubles, your financial troubles, your relational troubles, your school troubles, your job troubles, whatever troubles you might have. And instead of focusing on them to the point of anxiety or fear or discouragement and depression, instead of looking at your troubles, you look to the person of Jesus Christ and his provision and his love, and all he can do within your life for good. And the only way you can see those things is through the eyes of your heart. The Spirit of God opens the eyes of your heart. Through the Word of God, you understand these realities. They are just as much real as terra firma. They're just as real. God is real. Jesus is real. The Bible, the word, the truth is real. Heaven is real. Those are all realities. But if you're going to see those realities, you need to exercise the eyes of your heart, which is to say you walk by faith, right, and not by sight. But notice what it says here. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Oh, isn't that so good? Do you know that Jesus holds a corner on the market when it comes to hope? Did you know that? He's got it all. He's got all the hope. Which is to say, if you're looking for hope elsewhere, at some point in your life, you're going to be disappointed. I can tell you for a fact, my hospice patients have given up a whole bunch of things when it comes to hope. They're not hoping for a new home. They're not hoping for a better car. They're not hoping for a new job. They're not hoping that they can watch another episode on their favorite TV show. They're not hoping for that kind of stuff, right? And in fact, hopes run out for them. 
There is only one place they can go to find a legitimate hope. They're not always going to understand that reality, but that's the truth of it. And that one place is where? You know what it is? It's Jesus. The blessed hope. The living hope. It's no different for us. Just because we're not in hospice, we may have a little bit of time. We don't know. We need this. I'll tell you what, what a needy day. Just walk around the streets. People are so discouraged by all that's going on in our world. What an incredible opportunity you have, 1 Peter 3.15, that people might ask you to give a reason for the hope that is in you. But for that to happen, you're going to need to be hopeful. Right? You're going to have to be hopeful. What an opportunity we have. Boy, how we should pray for one another. We should pray this prayer for one another. Should we not? Spirit of God, open our eyes to the hope we have in Jesus. Amen? We really need to be that. We're God's people. That's our job. Well, I'll tell you what, I don't know what I would do. I, I would be the worst hospice chaplain in the world if I didn't believe in Jesus. I, don't, I would give up that job in a heartbeat. But it's no different for you in this world of need. Were it not for Jesus, what good news would you have for anybody? Right? Lord, open the eyes of my heart. We just sung, sang about this, right? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. What did it say? And the things of earth will go strangely dim, and the light is glory and grace. We need that. We need that prayer. God, do that within our hearts. Help us to turn our eyes upon Jesus and off of all the troubles and trials in our life. We focus on them so much. Do we not? And then notice the second thing it says, not just the hope of our calling, but it says that the eyes of our heart might be enlightened to the surpassing riches of uh, this inheritance we have. Hope you're calling the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints. So this glorious inheritance we have. And then thirdly, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? I actually missed a point earlier in my outline because I'm not looking at my notes. Can we back up for a second? Is that okay? Can I rewind? I'll rewind back to point one because I want you to, I didn't want to skip over this. Uh, back when we were talking about these uh, light and momentary affliction, I don't know if you noticed it. Maybe you noticed it, maybe not. It says preparing for us, preparing for us, the eternal weight of glory. In other words, I wanted to make this point. It's an important point. The troubles and trials in the life of a believer are not meaningless. In the life of an unbeliever, the troubles and trials in life, perhaps they draw a person to Christ. That would be good. Otherwise, are meaningless. In fact, they're just simply a precursor to something far worse in an eternal damnation. But not so in the life of a believer, because God is using those trials to prepare you for glory. In fact, he's using those trials to transform you. The Spirit of God, the Word of God, those trials are all working together to transform you, to make you to be like Jesus and prepare you for heaven. Those trials actually have a good purpose. In fact, you probably know Romans 8, 28, don't you? 
What does it say? It says, and we know, and we know, we know this. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to the purpose. Read one verse later. What is the good is talking about? Being conformed to the image of his son. So God is using those trials, what we deem to be bad things, God is really working them, using them for our good and preparing us for heaven. All right, onward. Back to 2 Corinthians. So the first point was this. Our troubles and trials may seem big to us now, but they're not so big if we compare them to what God has prepared for us in heaven. That's the first point, right? Second point was this, that we're to look not at the things which we see, to focus on those, but on the things we don't see, which are primarily what? Heavenly things or things related to our Lord Jesus Christ and what he has prepared for us and the provision he has for us in the here and now that we might endure the troubles we face. Okay, you with me? Third point. Second Corinthians uh, back there. For we know that if the tent that has an earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. Okay, so the tent is what? It tells us it's our earthly body. Go ahead. Touch it. Pinch it. That's it. This is your tent. Tent. Okay? I told you I'd answer the question, why does it say if? Because you and I both know, somebody once said, only two things you can count on, death and taxes. This is one of them, death. So people die. Everybody dies, right? Is there any exception? Well, there could be. There could be, right? The rapture. Christ could come. It's imminent. It could happen. It was imminent back then. It's imminent now. Paul knew that. It was imminent. The only reason there's an if is that we may be raptured instead of dying. That's a possibility. But if we're not raptured, sure enough, what's going to happen? We're going to die. Sometime, right? For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So God just called your earthly body a tent. Ever had a tent? We actually, Laura and I got a tent from my mom and dad for some anniversary or Christmas or something. It's a huge tent because we had all those kids. We had four kids, so we needed a big tent. So they got us a great, big, huge tent we used for camping. We had that thing for a long time. Used it many times. The old style where you had to figure out how the poles, where they all fit, you know. Finally, when we moved to Hepner, we had that tent. We weren't going to use it anymore. We gave it to Ann and Brandon. They took it down on the first camping trip. You know what happened? Well, the walls caved in. Just like that. Of course, the thing was like 30 years old, so I guess we got our use out of it. That's the problem with tents. What are they? Temporary dwelling places. That's what it is. Did you realize that? You are now living in a temporary dwelling place, that body of yours. That's all it is. That's all it is. And it doesn't matter how many super beats, balance of nature, predigen, or whatever things you take, 
It ain't going to change that reality. Not going to change it. Back there's nothing you can do. There's no fountain to use. Body's going to wear out. And some of us are more aware of that right now than others. Right? For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we know how that's going to happen. It could happen a lot of ways. It could be terminal cancer. Most of my hospice patients are cancer patients, by and large. Yeah, it's not easy. You know what we do in hospice? And, you know, hospice is a wonderful thing. I got the best, best uh, co-workers. I got a wonderful boss. It's such a worthwhile endeavor to be there for people on the final steps of their journey and try to help them in all the different ways. And generally speaking, people are dealing with pain. And hospice, one of the things that we do is try to manage the pain. Um, it's a great thing to have a caring nurse to come alongside and, you know, try to help you when you're dealing with that stuff. And the rest of us, we just try to do what we can. In my case, it's trying to find an opportunity to talk about Jesus, which I see more than one person, more than one, um, respond to in a positive way. And I've had plenty of people who are believers who it's great to watch them, um, watch how God provides for them through those final steps. All that being said, one way or the other, none of us know exactly when or how. God knows, Psalm 139. He knows the number of our days. Um, that time will come. All right? Got to come to terms with that reality, right? It's unavoidable. I actually think we as Americans are kind of like, you know, well, yeah, sure, right. Other people in other parts of the world, they see it all the time, right? <laughs> Certainly people in persecution or people that are in the poverty-stricken parts of the world, they know far more about this than, than we generally do. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Back when, years ago, we used to go camping in the Deschutes River, the mouth of the Deschutes. Ever been there? It's a nice campground, especially if you like steelhead fishing. There's good fishing right there. It's kind of windy, though. <clears throat> so Laura and I went there one time. Uh, I don't know how long ago that was. We set up our tent. It was just the two of us. And uh, this storm came along. Not your average. We could get some big storms back there, especially thunderstorms. But this was, this was a unique thunderstorm because the wind started blowing, really howling. And the rain started pouring down. And our tent, it's all we could do to keep the thing from blowing over. And this storm went on for a little while, and we managed. But when we finally got out of our tent, half the tents were gone. They left. They were out of there. It was too much for their little tents, Right? Well, if you go across the river from uh, that campground there to Deschutes, um, there's a place called uh, Mary's Hill. Ever been there? Mary's Hill? There's a museum there. Yeah, that's uh, Mary Hill Museum of the Art. And it's just pretty much across the river from there. The building was designed over 100 years ago by a man named Sam Hill to be his residence constructed of steel I-beams with interior steel studs. The walls, floors, and ceilings are constructed of pour, poured concrete reinforced with steel. He built that house, he said, to last for 1,000 years. Uh, it's been there for about a century, and obviously it's not going to make the 10,000 years for a bunch of reasons. 
because nothing on this planet lasts so long, right? But in contrast to that, what do you have? We know that if our earthly tent, which is our, our tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, not from Sam Hill, something far superior, God himself. Not made with hands. Everything that's made with hands on this planet is subject to decay, corruption, or brokenness. This is made by God who does everything perfectly. Eternal in the heavens. See that? Eternal in the heavens. Praise God that he has prepared that for you. But in the meantime, you're here. And notice this word that describes how you're doing in this earthly tent while you're waiting for this building from God. It says, for in this tent we groan. Been groaning lately? Doing any groaning? When do you groan? Do you groan when you get up? If you're lifting something really heavy, do you groan? Do you groan if you're feeling some pain? What does it mean to groan? It's almost inaudible, right? Or maybe you say something, you verbally communicate that you're what? Uncomfortable. You're uncomfortable. For whatever reason, you're uncomfortable. In fact, the same term is used in Romans chapter 8 in speaking about the same matter when it uses the analogy of a pregnant woman. So all you women who have been pregnant, and I'm a man, so I don't know anything about that, but you know something about groaning in your pregnancy, right? Because you have a big belly, probably in a sore back, and sore feet maybe, morning sickness, goes on and on, all those months, and there's groaning involved. Romans 8 says that, not me. But it says that's going on, while that's going on, you're looking forward to something, right? What are you looking forward to? The baby, right? So what this passage is saying is, as a believer in Christ, you're not supposed to be comfortable here. You're not supposed to be comfortable here. If you're comfortable here, something got messed up. You're out of place. You're a pilgrim. You're a stranger. This is not your home. You don't belong here. God has something way better for you. Now, you don't need to rush it up. But the Apostle Paul himself said what? He's hard-pressed between two decisions, whether to remain on, to stay here, to serve God, or to depart. He had a desire to depart and be with Jesus, for that is what? Very much better. Very much better. Not just better, very much better. You're not home here. You don't belong here. This world's not your home. You're just passing through. And while you walk this pilgrim pathway, clouds may overspread the sky. But when traveling days are over, what? Not a sorrow, not a sigh, because when you get there, everything will be changed. In this place, you have sin. You have sin. This world has sin, it's pervasive. It will never stop. It'll always be like this. Until one day, when you're in heaven, this place where it says in 2 Peter 3, where righteousness dwells, 
there will be no more sin. Praise God. And only that, in Revelation chapter 21, in this place we have tears. Because there's a lot of sadness. But guess what? When you get to heaven, there will be no more tears. Not only that, there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more mourning, no more death. All those things will be gone. Praise God. Not only that, when you're brought into the presence of Jesus, your eyes, what you see, it tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, you will marvel at him. You will be overwhelmed by the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a song that says, I can only imagine, and we can't imagine now, what that will be like to see Jesus just as he is. That's going to happen on that day. Not only that, you'll be reunited with all those who have gone before you to heaven. You're going to see them, all those in Jesus who have gone before you. It doesn't matter what trouble you have, it will go away. It doesn't matter what prayer request you have, they'll all be answered when you're brought into heaven. And you'll have a body, a brand new one. This body, no, it's past warranty. Mine is. There's nothing to be done. It's going to decay. That's what it says. Outer man is decaying. Wasting away, it says. But the inner man is being renewed day by day. But when we're brought into the presence of Jesus, an instant and miraculous transformation will take place. One of my favorite texts. And this is a great place to finish up. I see we're past time. In Philippians chapter 3, let me just finish up with this. In talking about these matters of life and death and heaven and hell and earth, seen things and unseen things, this is a good verse to kind of finish up with. As Paul is warning about the false teachers in this chapter, verse 19, he says, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory and their shame. With mindset on earthly things. That's such a challenge. Oh, man. That was the false teachers. They had their mindset on earthly things. And we don't want to be there. We want to have our mindset on heavenly things. That's who we are. We're the people of heaven. That's our destiny, right? That's where we're going. We should be like those pilgrims, you know, back in that old day. When those people were on board those covered wagons, yeah, they had their share of troubles, but I can tell you what, they probably sat around the campfires talking about where they're going. I'll bet you they did. Right? When I'm sitting with that hospice patient, we could talk all day about their various aches and pains. That's not what we talk about. We talk about where they're going, for those who are believers in Christ. I sat down with one guy one day, and he was on the verge of leaving this earth, a believer, fellow believer. His name was Randy. And that's what we did. We talked about heaven. He's worried about his family. I said, so don't worry about your family, Randy. God will find a way to take care of them. Hey, that's where the action lies. In this needy world, this is where it's at. That gospel, that good news of salvation through faith in Christ, that's where the action is. Get overwhelmed with the politics of our world or what's happening here or happening there. No. No, nope. we, we serve a living Savior, a risen Savior, 
one who's coming again. We are God's people. He's given us a job to do. We're to be ambassadors for Christ. We have a message of hope for anybody who will believe. But our citizenship, verse 20, is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. You've got a dual citizenship. You're an American citizen. Great. You know what else you got? If you're a believer in Christ, you've got a citizenship in heaven. That's way infinitely more better. And from it, we await a Savior. We're waiting for you, Jesus. We're here. We're waiting. We know when you come, you're going to make it all right. You're going to bring us home into your presence. And all the troubles and all the concerns and all the problems of this world are going to be gone, just like that. Who will transform our lowly body? Now, what's that? That's the one you got right now. Now, that's not me saying that. I'm not saying that about your body. You might be fairly attractive. I don't really know. God says it's a lowly body, right? Because it's what? Subject to sin. It's weak in sin. It's subject to decay. It can't. It's not. You know what? It's not ready. It can't go to heaven. Your body now can't go to heaven. You can't go to heaven looking like that. No, it's true. Because, here's the good news. He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. He can do it. He will do it. He's going to bring you home to glory one day. And because of that, you can endure. And if you keep those thoughts in mind, that's how you shrink your troubles. Ever see that movie, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids? The guy in the movie, it's a funny movie. He's got this machine he invented. Pretty amazing. He can direct this at something and it'll shrink it really small. He did it with his kids. It was a big problem. They were only like this tall. You could step on them really easy. Well, this is how, there's no magic involved with shrinking your troubles. According to our passage, it's a matter of having your focus on the right things. And the right thing ultimately is a person, not a thing. It's the Lord Jesus, right? So maybe we should sing that chorus, Chuck. What do you think? Turn your eyes on Jesus. I think it's in the bulletin, even. Imagine that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the truth of your word. We just thank you. Heavenly Father, how blessed we are. We don't have to walk through this world with no knowledge of what's going on. It would just be a world full of troubles with no hope. What kind of life would that be? You have so blessed us, making known to us the truth of the gospel. Lord Jesus, your wonderful sacrifice for sins on the cross, your resurrection from the dead, the basis by which we have this wonderful living hope. And thank you, Lord. You've told us ahead of time. You've got this place prepared for us. Our bodies might be wearing, wearing out now. We might face all kinds of troubles now, but it's just for a little while. Light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory beyond comparison that you have prepared for us. I'm sure any one of us could make a list of people in our lives who are struggling in one way or the other. Lord, grant us the hearts to pray for them. Grant us the opportunities to share with them. Help us to be a light shining in the darkness wherever we go. That you might be honored in that and that people might come to know you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.